Today I am joined by Karthik Ramanoharan, Assistant Professor at the National Law School of India in Bangalore. His research engages with questions of identity with a focus on race, national self-determination, religion, caste and gender. His two published monographs involved novel contemporary readings of the humanist anti-colonial thinker Franz Fanon and the rationalist anti-caste thinker Periyar E.V. Ramasamy. He is currently at Stanford as a visiting fellow at the Stanford Humanities Center. And it's in this context that I'm talking to him today uh, on the SASPOD. Kartik, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing great, Lalita. Thank you so much for having me on SASPOD. And I'm absolutely delighted to be here and to be talking to you. Well, thank you. Um, I, I already started with a little bit of an introduction, but it's very uh, short. So perhaps you can start by introducing yourself to our audience. Well, okay. So uh, to uh, start off, I love uh, Ernst Hemingway, right? So <laughs> um, uh, Hemingway is the, so the uh, writer I refer to to see if my writing is clear enough or not. So whenever I uh, write a journal article or a chapter or whatever it is, I just think to myself, what would Hemingway think of the sentence? And then I edit it, right? So apart from that, I'm a huge uh, admirer of uh, Soviet uh, dissident literature. And uh, I also absolutely uh, love uh, mythologies from across the world, right? Um, a little bit about my uh, background. Um, I did my uh, BA in sociology from uh, Loyola in Chennai. I did my uh, postgraduate diploma in journalism from Asian College of Journalism in Chennai. Master University and PhD from the University of Essex. Um, so I would like to identify myself as a interdisciplinary or a transdisciplinary person, but some people might also think that I do not have a discipline in life or in academia, but <laughs> I do try to... We are the undisciplined. I, yes. I am the South Asianist, uh, whatever that means. So yes, Indeed. we are the uh, undisciplined. Uh, you cut out briefly when you were talking about your master's. Where's your master's from? My master's is from Jawaharlal Nehru University in history. In history, yeah. And I did my PhD in political theory from University of Essex. So um, in the course of my uh, master's at JNU, I had uh, presented a paper on uh, uh, Franz Fanon and uh, Homi Baba, uh, more looking at uh, Homi Baba's reading, which I felt to be somewhat incomplete. And uh, in the course of my presentation, uh, the uh, lecturer, uh, Professor Niladri Bhattacharya, suggested that why don't you do a paper on um, Fanon and Periyar? That might be something interesting. So that idea just uh, stuck to me. And uh, so when I wrote my uh, PhD proposal, it was focused on uh, uh, arriving at a Fanon critique of identity politics and 
Periyar was one of my uh, case studies. Right? So how to use phenomenism as a theory to look at Periyar's anti-caste politics was one of the chapters of my thesis. Following that, I uh, published my uh, book on Franz Fanon when uh, in 2019, it's called Franz Fanon, Identity and Resistance. And uh, yeah, then I followed the, this co-edited volume called Rethinking Social Justice, uh, which was a fresh script to this uh, Dravidian studies scholar called MSS Pandian. And uh, then, yeah, the my most recent book is this Periyar, A Study in Political Atheism, which I request all of you to buy and get a copy for yourself because it's amazing. You can read it when you're traveling, uh, in your toilet, on the plane. It's actually, yeah. <laughs> I was I was on a plane and <clears throat> I was reading a, a a much bigger book than your Perrier book, and I regretted not having access to the smaller book. It's perfect yeah. for plane, actually. So Absolutely. I think that that should be that should be its kind of slogan: perfect for the plane. Um, which is not to say it's an airport book because that's something mm -hmm. very different. We will <laughs> uh we will link to it in the in the show notes for sure. Mm -hmm. So. Can you introduce Periyar to to me? I mean, I've heard you speak, but I didn't know really anything about him before I met you. Um, and I still don't know anything about him. And I imagine that many of our audience members are in the same boat. So can you give us the real 101 and then build up to your to your book? Okay. So um, if I were to begin an introduction to Periyar, I would start with the statement, always in conflict with authority figures right? <laughs> so from the time of his childhood where which he, was when huh which was so when he was born in 1873 1873 okay right so he was born in uh 18 uh, uh 73 and he lived till 19 uh 73 right? wow yeah so almost oh 1972 i'm sorry uh let me okay i'm actually very terrible with dates let me just uh cross check yeah 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 see i, I got it wrong it was 1879 to 1973 right got it yeah yeah 1879 to 1973 i think we get the general idea of of the of the time yeah, yeah. period either way so yeah. you're okay so so yeah the the this is 1973 uh, is is uh, just one year after the death of close friend and best enemy uh, rajagopal acharya or rajaji uh, who was the last indian governor general so anyway i'll just come to rajaji in a bit uh, uh, the thing is that uh, from his early childhood uh, Periyar was in conflict with authority figures. So it starts with people in his family. You know, his uh, father tells him to be, instructs him to be religious, to mingle with uh, people from other classes and castes, uh, to be true, you know, uh, uh, to be a more uh, studious uh, person and so on. And this person's defying it and he's being a... Um, what shall I say, uh, uh, a rebel or maybe even a vagrant, if you could call it. <laughs> and uh, so he fraternizes with the people from different castes and communities. This really shocks his family. And 
Was he from a Brahmin family? No, he Periyar comes from this intermediate uh, trading caste called the Balija Naidus. Now, the Balija Naidus uh, are theoretically, theoretically, they are uh, below the Brahmins and, uh, uh, you know, some would categorize them as Shudras. We are not, we cannot say how far this is historically accurate because textual reproduction in reality has not always been the clear case in India as in uh, social reality in India has not always followed the uh, 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 scriptures uh, but uh, at the same time uh, the Balija Naidus uh, the, in, in the British colonial administration they were lumped together in this very sort of loose category called Shudras right. and but uh, the Balija Naidus were a very wealthy and very prosperous and an upwardly mobile community. Now, if you look at Periyar's father himself, he started off as a laborer and he became one of the leading and most influential merchants in uh, the town of Iro. Right? Uh, but uh, along with the economic prosperity, uh, Periyar's father, Venkatapa Naikar, he also a very strong uh, religiosity mm -hmm. right <clears throat> he was a very pious hindu more specifically a pious vaishnavite so he names his uh, children as uh, uh, ramasami and krishnasami so krishnasami after lord krishna ramasami after lord rama so uh, matters came to a head when uh, periyar um, insults uh, a group of uh, mendicants his father had invited to his home uh, to give uh, religious sermons and his uh, father beats up Periyar and tells him to leave the house. Wow. Uh, now, uh, actually by this time, Periyar was already creating a lot of ruckus in the family because he was married, right? And um, uh, he compelled his wife to remove the sacred thread, right? So the sacred thread or the Mangal Sutra as it is known in Tamil, is worn by women to uh, symbolize, you know, commitment, fidelity, and also the fact that, you know, that she belongs to a man, right? You know, yeah. it's sort of like the wedding ring, except yeah. that in the case of the wedding rings, both partners wear it, right? Both right. the husband and wife wear it. Whereas in the Indian custom, the Mangal Sutra or the Thali is worn only by the woman, right? right. So, uh, Periyar being the sort that he is, he compels his wife to remove the tali and uh, ask her to participate in politics and so on. This completely ruffles feathers in his uh, family and uh, when he insults religious uh, uh, you know, uh, the religious preachers openly, his father gets irritated and asks him to leave the house. Now mm -hmm. Periyar goes on a trip to Kasi and Varanasi in North India uh, along with uh, two Brahmins and when he reaches these holy places, and now I'm referring fully to his own accounts as well as accounts by his two of his main biographers, namely Sami Chidambarana and uh, Karnanandam, both of whom have written biographies of Periyar in Tamil, which are, you know, uh, some of the more credible sources on Periyar. Now, uh, these accounts say, claim that uh, when Periyar went to Kasi and Varnasi, he was 
treated and he was not provided accommodation and he was in fact even uh, thrown out of certain lodgings but uh, his brahmin uh, co-travelers got uh, a very privileged and a very warm welcome mm. right now further when periyar you know uh, mingles around the sanyasis over there he says you know in his later days reflecting on his times in kadi and varanasi that he saw sees a lot of corrupt practices over there going in the name of so he says that whatever suspicions i had about religion got cemented when i visited kasi and varanasi so when i returned to tamil nadu i was i decided to campaign against religion and hinduism so that is his uh, you know own own self uh, narrative mm-hmm. um yeah so following that on his uh, return to tamil nadu uh, he incidentally uh, becomes very close to the congress right now uh, after returning to tamil nadu he Uh, uh uh is very active in the erode uh, municipal board and his activities are taken note by the congress who were on the lookout for you know regional notables to uh, fill their ranks and uh, periyar's organizational capacities were spotted by rajaji who was a very influential congress leader and he met periyar asked him to join the congress and soon they became the and uh, from uh, 1919 till uh, a part of 1925 periyar was a committed congressman and uh, he considered uh, uh, gandhi to be his leader and he was a very close affiliate of rajaji mm-hmm. in fact when gandhi gave the call for prohibition periyar uh, chops down all the sort of toddy trees in his uh, plantation um there is a sort of a radicalization which is happening in periyar when he joins or when he takes lead of the vaikom protests which were happening in kerala right now the vaikom protests were in the early 1920s these were led by these uh, apras caste group called ilavas who were prevented from uh, accessing the roads of a uh, temple over there because they were considered to be polluted Mm-hmm. now uh, periyar goes to vaikam on invitation from the kerala congress leaders and he makes a lot of uh, you know uh, he sort of radicalizes the struggle by saying that you know we need to completely overthrow the caste system we need to uh, you know if, if the temples are not allowing uh, uh, you know uh, oppressed caste communities then the temples are uh, to be broken and so on and so forth he makes all these sort of very provocative remarks he gets arrested and uh, he is in fact even uh, bestowed the title of vaikom veera which translates to hero of vaikom mm-hmm. now this is his first experience in a mass anti caste agitation right after this he starts making caste his priority criticizing caste his priority and uh, this leads to many uh, issues within the congress party so is one case in uh, uh, 1924 1925 where uh, uh, he visits this uh, school in this town called Cheranma Devi this is a gurukul which uh, uh, where he notices discriminatory practices towards non brahman students while you know again brahman students are given preferential treatment especially in terms of food lodging and so on so he raises this issue 
But uh, noticing that the Congress is unwilling to take a decisive stand on this, you know, given you know, given the participation of uh, 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 some of the Congress leaders themselves in this uh, involvement of the Congress leaders themselves in this guru pool, he expects a stronger reaction from the Congress to condemn these discriminatory practices. But that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So he makes a break with the Congress mm -hmm. and he starts the self-respect movement in five along with uh, introducing a new paper for dedicated exclusively to the emancipation of the non-Brahmin community. The paper was called the Kudiyarasu, which translates to the Republic. And the rest, as they say, was history. So um, just to go back a little bit, you said he was arrested. How did the British deal with anti-caste um, expression like did they care in a sense um the british uh, as far as uh uh you know very moderate and you know if we could call it constitutional approaches go the british supported certain anti-caste voices right so for instance uh there were uh, 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 political leaders from Tamil Nadu, like uh, Ratamala Srinivasan or uh, MC Raja, or even let's say uh, Ambedkar in North India, right? Now, all of these people to some extent uh, were seen by the British and were engaged with by the British as representatives of their own respective communities. Mm -hmm. um, Likewise, in Tamil Nadu, more specifically, there was the Justice Party, right, which was started in uh, 1917, provide a greater representation for non-Brahmins in the spheres of politics and education. Now, the Justice Party also had considerable support from the British, and they also supported the British in turn as did uh, some or many of the Dalit leaders of their times. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the Justice Party, however, wanted to take a purely institutional right? Now, they did not want to do mass agitations. They did not want to mobilize the people. They wanted to uh, contest elections. They wanted to uh, uh, negotiate with the British for... Uh, greater positions in power, but theirs was not an agitational uh, strategy for, you know, conveying their message. But Periyar was actually very agitational and also very confrontationalist. Yeah, right? it sounds and, like that. Yes. And this at times put him in trouble with not just uh, uh, the Congress party, but also with the British, right? You know, so uh, he was arrested for uh, the Vicom agitations mm -hmm. by... Uh, the police and then um, he was later uh, arrested you know he goes on a trip to the soviet union in uh, the early uh, in, in in the 1930s on his return he starts aggressively promoting social and for which he gets arrested again and later in 1938 when the congress government is in power uh, he is again arrested for his anti-india agitations but you know, the Congress actually arrests him using colonial laws for disturbing the peace and order and so on right. and so forth. So, um, Periyar's relationship with the British has been dicey at best, 
right? Because there are uh, certain points where Periyar says that, uh, you know, for an anti-caste movement to develop and mature fully, uh, it is important that the British colonials stay back because the Indian nationalists are dominated by upper caste and conservatives. Right. But there are also at other points of time where he recognizes that British colonialism is extremely economically exploitative and therefore a socialist program uh, needs to oppose colonialism as well. So uh, tell me more. Uh, I have one quick question before we go on. I want to ask you about Ambedkar. But before that, um, so he was kicked out of his house because uh, of his ancestral home because um, he asked his wife to take off her Mangal Sutra. I mean, what happened to her? Was she allowed to stay in the house or did she come to Benares with him? No, she doesn't. So the thing is that, uh, see, the he uh, asking his wife to remove the Mangal created problems in the home, but uh, he was kicked out of his home because he insulted the Brahmin priests. Ah, okay. That was the main reason. That's, okay. that's the main reason, right? So now all of this contributed to that, right? So, but the main tipping off point was when he <laughs> insults these uh, uh, Brahmin priests whom his father venerates, right? And, and uh, yeah, so that's when he's kicked off his home, but his wife stays back and on he involves his wife in political activities. She is known as Nagamai, Nagamayar, right? And in fact, there are some uh, Periyarist publications which uh, uh, use Periyar Nagamai in their uh, titles, you know, uh, as, as the publication ventures. So uh, she was a very prominent uh, uh, co-activist of Periyar and she also played a role in the Vaikum struggle and she got for the same and uh, she also uh, along with him fought for women's rights in Tamil. Great thank you I'm I'm glad to hear it uh, that she uh, that she was involved in the in the kind of the struggle and the revolution such as it was so tell me about Ambedkar then did they meet did they work together were they friends? Yes okay so Periyar had very high regard for Ambedkar right mm -hmm. So between, uh, um, you know, in the in, in the wake of the Pune Pact, which I told you about just some time back, in the wake of the Pune Pact, uh, Ambedkar faced extreme opposition from uh, the conservative Hindus as well as Indian nationalists, right? Because many people believed that uh, Ambedkar was uh, diluting the for independence by focusing too much on uh, divisions within uh, Hindu or uh, the Indian society and as well as uh, for, uh, uh, you know, asking for, uh, you know, uh, separate uh, electorates, right? You know, the separate electorates for uh, uh, Dalits and uh, so on and so forth, right? Um but, uh, and I do want to point this out over here because there is a lot of uh, misinformation about Periyar's relationship with uh, Ambedkar. Uh, you know, some, uh, an as big a scholar as like Nicholas Dirks makes this uh, point in his book, Cast, uh, Cast of Mind, that uh, 
periyar did not take ambedkar seriously nor did he uh, you know engage with uh, ambedkar's work in any significant way right now i have uh, evidence and i have written about this as well that in the time of the pune pact right and in the time that followed very specifically between 1932 and 1944 kudiyarasu which i told you which was the paper edited by periyar published 37 articles in support of ambedkar's political positions wow right 37 articles as early as 1935 periyar is urging tamil dalits to look at ambedkar not as a dalit leader but as a and i'm quoting him in his own uh, words as a national leader mm. right and likewise uh, you know mahatma gandhi had taken a fast unto death to protest against the granting of separate electorates for dalits periyar calls mahatma gandhi's fast and I, again a barbaric form of blackmail wow. right and further he tells that uh, irrespective of the outcome of the pune pact dalits should continue to fight for separate electorates because he says that uh, dalits cannot rely on other castes or other communities uh, uh, to support them in their quest for liberation that they should have separate political representation in their own hands And so, was so, this a precursor to the quotas? Then, would you say? Uh, was this the precursor to the quotas? Not necessarily, because the quotas were already introduced in Tamil Nadu by the Justice Party. Okay. Yeah. Quotas and some amount of, you know, uh, and 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 attempt at uh, some sort of uh, affirmative action was uh, already in place in Tamil Nadu, thanks to the Justice Party. Got it. I heard you say um in one of your talks that I was privileged to attend at Stanford that Periyar needs to be saved from the Periyarists. What do you mean by that? <laughs> okay. That's a great <laughs> statement. <laughs> yes. Okay, so the thing is that see this is this of course is uh, uh, it's it's a, what shall I say a statement made in jest but at the same time there is a serious emotion behind it, mm-hmm. right? like all jokes which have some sort of a punchline right, right. <laughs> so uh but, um, i feel i very strongly feel that uh, periyaris have not been uh, active enough uh, to uh, take the work of periyar to broader audiences right mm-hmm. and, and i tell this purely in a spirit of friendly criticism that uh, you know a uh, a uh, 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 personality such as periyar who has written and spoken about things that are not to politics in tamil nadu but to a much broader public in india and perhaps even beyond india um i think that more effort should have been put uh, put into uh, uh, translate periyar's thoughts into other languages you know or uh, publish you know Uh, uh, uh regular compilations of his works on different subjects and uh, so on and so forth you know for instance uh, uh periyar you know he says that i have no attachment to any country region language uh, nation state or culture right so he does not want to identify himself with any particular geography or 
nationality or culture so to honor the thoughts of such a person i think that his followers should also be more internationalist in their approach right, right. and and that you know um, it also does not mean that just because a thinker has said this that you know uh, he should be uh, taken across the world it's also because of some of the things which he said can greatly inform debates on uh, issues of identity issues of discrimination issues of uh, social hierarchy and more importantly issues of women's liberation right so uh, you know for uh, I, I, this work by shulamit firestone called the dialectic of sex mm -hmm. right no it was published in the 1970s where uh, it's it's a very remarkable polemic on uh, on 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 why uh, women should have complete sexual autonomy and uh, freedom and also how she views the rise of technology especially you know perrier says the stuff decades back you know uh, he's he's talking about uh, women's liberation not only in terms of you know uh, uh, equal rights or uh, securing representation in uh, political or uh, uh, political posts or educational institutions he's supporting that as well but more broadly uh, a form of complete uh, sexual autonomy and non dependence on men right, right. and also he's also uh arguing that uh, you know um, uh birth control should not be seen as merely as something to control the population or the growth of population numbers but fundamentally its principle should be to secure the rights and freedom of women right wow. now he's talking about all of this in the 1940s right yeah. at a time when this was completely unthinkable for any indian politician or pretty much uh, any leader in south asia right yeah. now i do feel that uh, these aspects of periyar carry a resonance way beyond the boundaries of tamil nadu and i it's it's a, it's with some regret i feel that the periyaris have not really you know uh, come such writings and taken them to a much wider audience Well, hopefully your work will assist in doing that. I did not know much about Periyar, but I'm very intrigued now. And I'm so lucky to have a copy of your latest book, Periyar, A Study in Political Atheism. So are you are you thinking of, are you going to publish more on Periyar or are you moving into uh, your next project now? Um, I am planning to move into my next project now, but there is something in the works on Periyar. namely the cambridge companion to periyar which i'm co-editing with uh, ar uh, venkatachalapathy uh, who's a professor at mids and a noted tamil historian so uh, the cambridge companion to periyar is an attempt to bring diverse perspectives on periyar relying on uh, new material and also covering different sorts of uh, periods as well as uh thematic uh, issues on uh, periyar and uh, my uh, contribution to this which i feel is a sort of a culmination of my you know almost decade long engagement with periyar is an with how periyar looked at aryanism right oh. because yeah because uh, the idea of 
Aryanism and his opposition to Aryanism constitute such a very important uh, part of his politics and even his engagement with identity. In fact, uh, in my very first journal article, uh, which was published in uh, Interventions, titled Anti-Castist Castism, it's polemical. It takes from uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, definition of negritude as anti-racist racism. Now, uh, in that, I had very briefly uh, covered Periyar's approach to the Brahmins and the Aryan questions. But I wanted to explore this as a paper or a chapter in its own right. And hopefully, uh, we, we are hoping to get the Cambridge Companion out uh, by uh, 2025, which would be the centenary year of the self-respect movement. Wow. But as is the case with the edited volumes, much depends on the mercy of the contributors. And I think we've been very merciful to the contributors <laughs> till now. But maybe this is the time with my, you know, uh, engagement with Carl Schmidt, we should probably be more decisionist. <laughs> well, uh, contri any contribu contributors listening, uh, please uh, remember, we, uh, we need this out by 2025, because that's the centenary. So... Uh, get going, I guess. <laughs> Before we sign off, Kartik, I want to ask you about your work at Stanford. You, um, you, you're here for a month on a short-term visiting fellowship at the Stanford Humanities Center. You're enjoying fall at Stanford. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what are you working on, and how does it help you being at Stanford? Okay, so uh, now I should say that uh, till this uh, point of time. Uh, I have mostly worked on uh, figures who broke the law, right? You know, like uh, Franz Fanon, who broke the French law, colonial law and joined with the Algerian militants. Uh -huh. And then uh, and then Periyar, who broke the British colonial laws and later Indian uh, laws on, you know, uh, 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 not offending religions and so on and so forth. And yeah, so... Uh, now I'm actually quite interested in uh, Karl Schmidt, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, at National Law School, I taught a very intensive seven-day course on Karl Schmidt. And after receiving extremely positive feedback, I decided to offer an elective on uh, Karl Schmidt, which was very well received. And uh, in the course of the lecture, I thought uh, that there was a considerable gap in the scholarship on Carl Schmidt because uh, none of them had addressed one very important event which happened in the previous century, namely the Indian emergency. Mm. Right? So given the association of Carl Schmidt with theories of emergency. I mean, it's impossible to uh, uh, do a study of the theories of emergency without Carl Schmitt, right? And, uh, but looking at the literature on uh, uh, states of emergency produced uh, by uh, scholars across the world, I find it quite surprising that the Indian case did not find a mention, right? Uh, why I found this why I found this particularly significant is because the Indian case for emergency poses a considerable challenge to 
Schmidt's concept of uh, the state of emergency as such, right? Now, uh, I'll not much into detail because it's just, it will go take me down a very uh, winding path. But <laughs> let me just highlight one main point, which is that Schmidt considers the declaration of emergency as the elimination of diversity. Mm -hmm. right? So according to Schmidt, the declaration of emergency eliminates diversity in a country. Now, he's very ambiguous about diversity, right? So uh, we can't really be clear whether he is thinking about social diversity or political diversity. But for the good part, we can uh, assume that he is mostly talking about the uh, political diversity which emerged in the wake of the crisis in the Weimar constitution, right? right? But with the declaration of Indian emergency, Indra Gandhi is repeatedly at pains to point out that it's only the emergency which can safeguard the interests of diverse populations in India. Mm. Now, this poses, I would say, a sort of a, 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 a theoretical challenge to the conception of uh, emergency in Karl Schmidt, right? Mm. Because how can you have a sort of a, 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 a state of exception where there is one party which is controlling uh, resources and power, but at the same time, it's also encouraging pluralism in society and in politics as well. Because this is something which Schmidt does not consider at all, right? I mean, let's the ob uh, obvious question is the question of context, because Schmidt is talking about European states, which are mostly homogeneous, right? But uh, whereas uh, dealing with a country like India and dealing with the heterogeneity which India has, how can we? Uh, look at a Schmittian theory from an Indian perspective, more importantly, from the Indian experience of emergency. Mm -hmm. right? So this is something I was working on uh, during my month's stay at Stanford. As you can see, this has significantly uh, diverged from my previous research interests, but there is also a point from which I'm coming here, which is that in my second chapter in my uh, Periyar book, right? So I make this claim that uh, Periyar's uh, political atheism or political atheism of any sort is a challenge to political theology, right? Mm -hmm. Now, political theology is a concept which was uh, uh, developed, not introduced, but developed by Carl Schmitt to say that modern political concepts which we have are just secularized theological concepts, right? Now, in my second chapter, I explore what would it mean to have a political imagination like that of Peria, which challenges all forms of theology, including secularized theological concepts. So that's what the second chapter of my book is about. Now, it's this, this current interest in Schmidt comes from there, but the research trajectory which I'm taking now is, I would say, quite uh, different from what I've done in the past. And uh, the resources which I was able to access from Stanford have 
remarkably helped me in uh, uh, helping me develop uh, perspectives on how to take this forward. That's amazing. And I'm so pleased to hear it. Now, do you think this is going to be an article or do you think you will get your uh, fourth book out of this? Okay. So uh, at the moment, I want to start it off as an article, right? Sure. Uh, but uh, I do hope to uh, expand it into a book because I also want to cover certain other aspects of uh, Indian politics, most notably debates on Indian constitutionalism and constitutional morality, mm. right? Yeah. Because uh, generally, there is a tendency among Indian liberal secularists to uphold constitutional morality as a, a, a sort of a protection against, uh, uh, you know, different forms of political extremism. But uh, I feel that uh, uh, constitutional morality has not been adequately theorized. It has been spoken about much, but it's not been theorized. And uh, also, it also has certain limitations which are there within the Indian constitution itself. And I think that having Carl Schmidt as an interlocutor gives me a powerful uh, theoretical resource to look at debates on uh, constitutionalism and constitutional mora morality in India. Right? Because again, to just slightly go back to Periyar, Periyar was a complete right said again Periyar was what Periyar was an anti-constitutionalist right right you know being the sort of uh, uh, anti-statist and proto-anarchist that he was he did not believe that uh, any text be it uh, uh, secular or be it religious can be the last word in determining uh, public life right mm -hmm. or in determining what can cannot be the extents of social justice activism mm -hmm. right? now yeah so this is something I'm, I'm actually quite interested to going and i do hope that it will take the shape of a monograph i i have to say karthik speaking to you i i i feel so we started with sociology then we had history then we had political theory i mean this this undisciplined nest that you refer to uh, when we first started speaking I think it really shows through in in you you show how generative that is actually uh, to not like Barrier I guess be beholden to a <laughs> yeah. particular text or a particular a way of thinking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank um, you. <laughs> yeah, no, this is amazing. Um, I we need to wrap up, but I want to encourage everyone to to read your work, uh, to familiarize themselves with Barrier. Uh, and to um, stay in touch with what you're writing. And where can people find you, Karthik? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at, uh, if you just type for Karthik Ram Manoharan, you can find me on Twitter. Okay, great. And, then um, we will encourage people to, I have a, a somewhat complicated relationship with X, as it's now known. Ah, yes. uh, but I think it's still a really great way of staying in touch with uh, with scholars and and finding out what they're publishing and yeah. what they're thinking about things. So, um, yeah. Apart from that, uh, if you search for Kartikra Manoran, it will also take you to my faculty webpage on National Law School, which has my uh, university's email address. You can contact me over there for any sort of official... So...
Okay, thank you. This is fantastic. Um, so invitation to um, contact Kartik if you have questions, you want to find out what else he's working on. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the SASPOD. Thank you so much, Lalita. Thank you. I had a lovely time talking to you. It's been really great. Um, I want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the music and Nilofar Saraj, who's taking care of our post-production for the time being. Thank you, Nilofar, and thank you, Karthik. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.